There's a famous quote by Mark Twain that says, history does not repeat, but it often rhymes. Looking back at stories and legends and histories, we see time and again how human beings make the same types of mistakes and how the same types of people often rise up to defeat the tyrannies and oppressions of dictators and sociopaths. The story is told over and over. Cycles of terror and freedom are not limited to the human experience only. God also has cycles, and we can see them if we read scripture from Genesis to Revelation. There are types and foreshadows of Yeshua in Moses and Joseph and so many others. There are also types and foreshadows in history of the Revelation version of the Antichrist. And here is where we find the story of Hanukkah. Snuggled between the Old Testament and the New Testament is a seriously amazing underdog story. Guys, I love telling this tale every year to my kids. It's about the people of God coming back to his things, standing firm in the face of tyranny. And it's a foreshadowing of the light that would soon be coming into the world. So this happened before Christ came, but there was something so beautiful about this story and about the light that is represented in the menorah and at the end of the story that really clues you in, Jesus is coming. Yeshua himself celebrated Hanukkah. In John 10, uh, we see that John references him heading to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Dedication. Hanukkah has a lot of names. It's got Festival of Lights, Feast of Dedication. Some say it should be called the Feast of Rededication because the temple is dedicated or rededicated at the end of the story. So um, there are many names and synonyms for this um, incredible celebration. But you see Yeshua celebrate this. And the story and the symbolism are wonderful tagalongs to scripture. So I want to dig into why that is. It's, let's first do a quick recap of the story, though. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this story, um, it's an incredible tale. And I would, I would tell you it's part of history. Um, it's a historical account, even though much of the account seems to be missing. It's a little bit scattered. But you can look up the Hanukkah story, do some research on your own. I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, Pretty much where I always start the story, just for simplicity, is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, this Roman emperor, comes to power and his rulership over lots of lands, including Jerusalem. But he hates the Jews, and he immediately begins persecuting them. And the persecution is absolutely horrific and widespread. People are just being slaughtered, and they are being tortured. Um, so it's throughout Jerusalem, and it's heavily against the Jews. Eventually, God raises up Jewish leaders who lead a revolt that is successful, and the temple is taken back and rededicated over an eight-day celebration, hence our eight-day Hanukkah celebration. Lighting the menorah was an important piece of that celebratory moment because the menorah was such an important symbol in the temple, and it was put in this particular place. They had um, the menorah that God told Moses to make was like as tall as a man. It was giant. Okay. And we're going to get into the sim symbolism in the menorah in a little bit here, but it was part of the temple services. The priests would have lit the oil in the menorah every night. And so this was a big part of rededicating the temple. So they light the menorah. Um, and, and it had obviously the temple had been overtaken by Antiochus and desecrated by Antiochus. And so this was, it was so important to kind of cleanse from what had happened. And, and he, let's get into that a little bit. So Antiochus desecrated the temple 
and he's forcing the Jews to eat pork and eat swine's flesh. And he's telling them they can't celebrate their holidays and they no longer get to have their faith, which is rooted, obviously, as we've been learning in the Old Testament, in the Torah. Um, his sort of abominable behavior is is kind of discussed as a future happening as well. Because Jesus brings this up, he references Daniel, but then he says a time is going to come when another guy like this is coming. And I'm talking about this because I want to help you understand that the story of Hanukkah is actually a picture also of the Antichrist. And it's a mini picture of the story of the end of all things as well. There are intricate details that align with what happened uh, with Hanukkah that are going to happen, that are prophesied to happen in the end in places like Daniel and Revelation. So here's what Jesus says about this in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. Okay. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Yeshua references the prophecy that Daniel gives for a coming Antichrist. But interestingly, the prophecy that Daniel spoke there already happened with Antiochus as well. This is a cycle and it's a type. Um, obviously, the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world and has been in the world. But there are giant, significant comparisons I want to pull for you to help you understand why I celebrate Hanukkah and why I think it's such an important history to, to relate and we know that you, Yeshua is re referencing Daniel. And going back to the book of Daniel, you are going to find the Antichrist, an abomination, described as someone who goes into the temple, stops the daily sacrifice, puts a pig on the altar, and instead sacrifices this unkosher stuff to the god Zeus. This would, would have been an incredible abomination to the Jews to have this happen in their temple. And of course, it's an abomination against the laws of God. Interestingly, Daniel's prophecy came true with Antiochus. He did all of those things. Yeshua said these things are going to happen again. So in the story of Hanukkah, we get a picture of the coming situation with the Antichrist. And it's going to happen on a large scale. It's going to be global, like the world has never seen before. Here's a few more similarities between the Antichrist and Antiochus. He, they speak pridefully and vilely against God and his people. They are filled with pride. They are overtaken by their lust for power and destruction, right? There's three and a half years of intense persecution. And at the middle of the seven, you know, there's this seven-year time period, three and a half and three and a half split up. Right in the middle of that week is when the abomination of desolation occurs. That happened already. Antiochus did that. And the future Antichrist will do the same. Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist both make agreements with Israel. That's a similarity. And they both seem to be obsessed with causing people to eat pigs. Listen, this... I know a lot of you, you're going to bristle at this. You're not going to like this. But we have to deal with what scripture actually says. Um, there's prophecies that in the end times, 
people will even be eating swine flesh. And I'm going to go to this in a second. And it's not referenced in a good way. Okay, so here's to here's what Isaiah 66 says, that you may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that you may milk, may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck. You shall be born upon her sides and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire, and with his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger with fury, and his rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. They that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the gardens behind one tree in the midst, probably referencing an evergreen tree because they used coniferous trees in a lot of their pagan rituals. One tree in the midst eating swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse shall be consumed together. The Lord, this is God saying, I, I'm going to give you this peace. You're going to have this wonderful thing. You're going to be so pleased when you see me come with fire and absolutely destroy and desolate people eating swine's flesh, people using coniferous trees for religious activity. And this, I mean, this is pretty damning. This is a reference into the end times because it talks about God pleading with all flesh, all mankind. This is not just going to be Israel. He will be dealing with everyone at this time, okay? So there is something about the Antichrist's obsession with making people eat pig's flesh. And we're going to read about this in a second in the actual story of the Maccabees. Um, but I think it's because Satan wants to defile people. And he uses his human worshipers to enforce that defilement across all the nations. Antiochus did this, as we will see in a moment. No doubt the future Antichrist will as well. There are many, many other similarities to these two characters, and you can look them up. I think it's really fascinating to study this story and see the foreshadowing of Satan's next great attempt at devouring and ending God's line. But more encouraging from this story are some of the brave souls that come out of it. And there's one man in particular who gives his life to embolden his Jewish brothers and sisters. His name was Eleazar. And I want to read from the book of Maccabees to get the gist of what he told one of Antiochus's henchmen when asked to eat pork so that his life could be saved. The guy basically came to him and said, hey, and, and this is a guy who didn't want to kill Eleazar, and they were killing anyone who wouldn't do this. And so he sneaks to Eleazar's ear basically and says, hey, go get some of your kosher meat. We'll pretend it's pork. Eat it in front of everyone and your life will be spared. And this is Eleazar's response and it's pretty, it's pretty incredible. Let me find it in the book. I do not obey God under any kind of fraud, but rather I will endure this your violence. For inasmuch as I am an old man of 90 years, my bones are now weakened and my body is wasted away. If I therefore shall with a brave spirit endure those torments from which even the bravest young men shrink back in fear, my people and the youth of my nation will bravely imitate me and will say, How is it that we may not endure the pains, which one who is inferior to us in strength and less substantial in flesh and bones has undergone, which indeed will be better for me than to deceive them by a feigned obedience to the king? 
For they will then say, if that decrepit old man, wise and prudent as he is, is clinging to life and overcome by the pain of temporary matters, abdicating his religion, truly that will be lawful for us, which was lawful for him, since he is an old man and a wise one, and one whom we ought to follow. Wherefore I would rather die, leaving them a constancy in religion and patience against tyranny, than live, after having weakened their constancy in obeying the Lord and following his commands, so that through me they may be rendered happy, not unhappy. Now when the guy that is Antiochus's henchman Felix hears this, he's enraged, and he tortures this old man, Eleazar, because Eleazar won't eat pork, he won't eat it as a lie, and he won't, he won't defile himself in front of those younger than him. He wants to inspire them to live righteously even unto death and to not disobey the law of God. And so he is tortured. And he's so tortured that he begs God, please kill me because I don't know if I can do any more. And God does. But he is kind of this famous character from this Hanukkah story. Here's what happens. In the end, the Jews, they rebel and they win. And they rededicate the temple. And out of this, we have part of the celebration, which is the menorah. And so we come to the second part of uh, this podcast. I really wanted to discuss the menorah. I was listening to Rabbi uh, Mayer Soloveitchik this week. And he has a podcast that discusses, at some point in his podcast, the shape of the menorah and how beautiful it is, but also how opposite to the culture it is. So the menorah is this really odd shape. God tells Moses to fashion it out of one giant piece of gold, and Moses is completely incredulous that he will be able to pound this thing out that way. Um, And rightly so. It's a difficult shape to achieve and also make functional. But basically, this menorah, the traditional menorah, is a seven-candle menorah with one candle in the middle and three to either side. Seven is such an important number in Scripture, and so it makes a lot of sense why it would be a seven-candle menorah. The Hanukkah menorah, which is pictured on my podcast here, is a nine-candle menorah, and that's to represent the eight days, four on either side, where they lit the menorah and they had enough oil for eight days to do so, which is part of the tradition, I would say, of Hanukkah. But let's talk about the shape of the menorah because it is a symbol that happens from Exodus through Revelation. You see it through scripture and I want you to look it up. You're going to see Jesus as the lamb among seven golden lampstands in Revelation and that is a menorah. You're going to see this idea of light throughout scripture and even in Psalm 23, David says, thou anoints my head with oil, oil being part of the menorah uh, ceremony where they fill it with oil and they light each of these candles. And that oil is the energy. It's the knowledge. It's the wisdom. And in the temple, I believe the menorah represented the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what fills each of us, right? So David understands the concept of being anointed with oil and the, the importance of oil. This symbol would have been well understood by the ancients. It's something that we moved away from as we tried to move away from looking too Jewish a few thousand years ago. But I want to talk to you about why this symbol is so cool and so important today. So if you think about it, symbol one symbol of power and political power and political structure and especially power not just associated with political but with spiritual worship is triangular in shape. And so you've got a small top 
and a wide base. And you see this in the pyramids. You see this at Chichen Itza and with the ziggurats and ancient pagan worship, Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Wide base, small top, representing one or two people or a small number of people at the top, enslaving the rest of humanity. And the most people that are enslaved in the worst position are at the bottom. Okay, the Bible tells us Satan wants to be worshipped in the high places. He's obsessed with mountaintop, the mountaintop experience. He wants to be the head. It is part of his pride. And so the symbol that he gave to peoples all over the world to use to worship foreign pagan gods is a triangular one. And even today, this triangle and this eye are associated with the Illuminati and all sorts of secret organizations and things that were like, that just doesn't seem to be biblical at all. You know, the Egyptians enslaved the the Hebrews for, you know, something up to 400 years. And they had pyramids, right? They were obsessed with pyramids. And so we just know that the symbol, there's a symbol of the world that is small at the top and wide at the bottom. The menorah is the opposite. It is small at the bottom and wide at the top. Now, we even see this coniferous tree, this idea of being around these coniferous trees and even what we use as Christmas trees. It's triangular in shape, right? Wide at the bottom, small at the top. But the menorah is a tree. It's a deciduous tree. And I think when you look at it, you can see how this is the shape that we use when we're plotting out a family tree. The menorah is a picture of God in the center and all people branching out from him. His people, the Bible tells us, God says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the root, you are grafted in to the root. And then he gives this menorah picture to Moses that shows up through all of scripture. And it's a picture of a family tree. It's a family God is not only the center, but he is strong enough to hold the entire tree in its root. So that centerpiece in the menorah goes all the way down to the base of the menorah. And there's a strong root. God is our root. He's our foundation. He is what the faith is planted into, right? It's he's, we are grafted into his tree, not the other way around. And it is so important to notice that what they would do is they would fill the menorah with oil by starting in the middle. And then that middle piece actually had holes out to the sides and would fill the sides. The Holy Spirit, God the Father, Christ Jesus, right? They're the center. And that Holy Spirit oil fills each one of us. We are connected. And I also want to point out the menorah is an obvious, when you look at it, it's an obvious image of a system that is not built on slavery. It is not built on enslaving humanity, where the satanic systems are absolutely built on enslaving humanity. And these symbols that are so ancient still show up today. And the believer needs to be aware of this because it's going to clue you into who has authored what you're looking at. What is the seed? Is it of God or is it of the satanic power, right? Is it human or satanic? Um, So the purpose of the menorah, I think, is also important. You know, we have lots of symbols in Christianity, but we talk about light a lot, and yet we have nothing that symbolizes light. The menorah 
its purpose is to give light. And we are supposed to be the light of the world, a family of light. How cool is that? So I really wanted to just talk about the fact that God, even in the symbolism he gave in scripture and the symbolism he will use at the end, it's about family, unity, freedom, light, energy, all centered around him as our heavenly father. The menorah, I also look and it looks like he's reaching out to each one of us in love. And I just can't get over how beautiful it is that this is one of the symbols the Bible tells us to understand and recognize. It's one of the symbols Yeshua will be a part of in the end. We will see this in the kingdom. This is part of our faith and our root. So I hope you get a chance during this Hanukkah time period to do a little more research and reading on your own. And I hope as you look at the picture of the menorah, if you don't have one of your own, just know God's family is a family tree. And he fills us all with his light and his goodness. And he even wants you to see it symbolically to understand who are we. We belong to God's family. I'm Rachel Amaday. Thank you so much for joining my podcast today. Love you guys. Happy Hanukkah.